the letters to the Corinthian church uh, are some of Paul's more authoritative letters. Uh, some of them, you know, like you got the book of Philippians, and it's nothing but like joy, and you know, everything's real nice. And uh, Corinthians isn't that way. This church, they're kind of a rough bunch. Uh, they had to receive a fair amount of correction. And so with the first book of Corinthians, they had written a letter to Paul. They had some questions for him, and he answered all of them and talked about a lot of things. It was very corrective. Second Corinthians is slightly different in that now, and this would probably be, uh, many believe, the third letter Paul wrote to the church, um, that he's defending his apostleship for a good portion of it. If you remember last time we were together, we talked about this issue that the church had with Paul, that there were opponents of Paul there in the church. And um, I just realized that door's open right there, huh? I'm going to close that. Because I'll get distracted this whole time, you know. And then they'll start laughing in there, and it's just a whole thing. And Okay, now we're better. Where did I leave off in the introduction? Correction. His apostleship, okay, okay, yes. So the problem was is that Paul had gone up to the northern region of Macedonia instead of going to Corinth, the southern region there in Achaia, and he had said he would go. Now, he was, and we talked about in chapter 2, that, that his opponents were saying, well, you can't trust Paul. You know, he's a lousy guy and he's all these things because he does, he's not, you know, coming here like he said he would come here. And he's like, I'm going to get there, but right now the Lord has led me. And so he gets into this thing of talking about how the Lord is the one he's living to please, how the Lord is the one who's called him to do the things he's called him to do. It's not, and Paul would even say, look, it's not even my call. I'm going and doing what God has told me to do. He's the one that's opened a door of ministry. And so he's defending himself uh, in that way, he finishes off chapter 2 talking about how all of us, as we're marching with the Lord, living for the Lord, are living this life as it's well-pleasing to Him, as this aroma to the rest of the world. Do you remember we talked about this? About this aroma. That some people, they smell us, they see us, and they go, they go oh man, that's just, that's rotten stuff, man. It's, it's a reminder of, of their distance from God. It's a reminder uh, of a coming separation from God. Now to others who smell the same exact aroma, they, they smell us and they go, man, that's pleasant, right? Isn't it pleasant to be with God's people? We get together and there's people who are going in the same direction and they love the things that are excellent and, they, and, and all these things and, and, it's, and it's a joy. And so here in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he's going to continue on shortly in that vein of defending himself just a little bit more in the first three verses. In verses 4 through 6, he's going to talk about his, his real reliance on the Lord. And so, so many times with Paul, as he defends himself, it can sound proud, but it's not because he'll always temper that with humility and his real reliance on the Lord. And so we have his defense, we have his reliance on the Lord, and then he's going to get into, in this whole chapter... As he's going through what he's talking about, this chapter 3 is almost like this kind of parenthetical thought. Uh, you ever been talking about something and then you go, okay, hold on, let me explain a little more. And then you like drop down to talk about something else. And then, and then you talk about something else after that. That's a lot of what this chapter is uh, because he's going to use some phrasing at the beginning and that's going to open up a whole discussion, which we're so glad we have because he's going to talk about the old covenant versus the new covenant. And sometimes we can have some misunderstanding about that. So he clears that up. And then he finishes off talking about the liberty that we have in Christ. And so that's what we're going to see here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Let's read through it. 
we'll pray, and then we'll start talking about it. He says, do we begin again to commend ourselves? Or do we need, as some others, epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? For you, uh, you are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. Verse 4, And we have such trust through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being of ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Verse 7, But if the ministry of death, written and engraved on stones, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not steadily could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away. How will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. For if what was passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. Verse 12, Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech, unlike Moses who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. But their minds were blinded, for until this day the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Verse 17, he says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Lord, we just thank you again that we can be here. We would ask you to fill us with your Holy Spirit. Make this book, Lord, live to us. Show us ourselves, show us our Savior. And again, Lord, make this book live to us for your sake, we pray. Amen. So he starts out, again, we talked about in verses 1 through 3, this defense of his, that he says, do we begin again to commend ourselves? Do we pat ourselves on the back? Do we show everyone who we are? Do, do we honor ourselves? He says, do we need, as some others need, epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? These letters that he talks about, he says epistles and then he says letters. Uh, an epistle is just a letter. So it's just for some reason that's the word the translators like to use. But these letters of commendation are like letters of recommendation. You know, when you want to get a job, you usually have to get a letter of recommendation saying that the person you're saying you are is indeed who you are, that other people believe that same thing about you, right? And so, uh, not that these weren't used and not that Paul never used them, but as kind of goes here, he says, with any group of people, if there's ever a group of people who I don't need these letters to or from, it's from you. Well, why is that? Because he's, he, Paul was the one who started this church. Paul was the one who, who established this church. He was the one who poured into and shepherded this church. He, he's saying, look, if I were to send somebody somewhere else, yeah, I'd send a letter with them so that they knew who they were. 
Uh, or, or if I was going somewhere else, I'd like a good word. But with you guys, I don't need that. Why? Well, he goes on in verse 2. He says, you are that epistle. You are, in some ways, his proof of apostleship. That he spent that time. He established this place. He did all the work. He was the one that was up long hours pouring into these people and helping them to become who they are. He was the one that taught them who Jesus was and what it meant, uh, all that Jesus did. He was the one that was helping root out some of the legalism that was there. He was the one that was helping them mature in their faith. And so he said, I don't need letters. I don't need any of that stuff for you. You are that epistle. You're the one. And, and he says, the epistle written on our hearts. He says, known and read by all men. And he says, again, clearly you're that epistle of Christ ministered by us. And he says, not written with ink right? It's not some scroll. And he says, and it's not written on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of, of the heart. So he says, you're the proof. And I think we, we, to some degree, you have that sometimes in your life, right? A parent, usually with a kid. <laughs> Do I have to prove myself to you? Man, you, without me, you wouldn't even be here. My dad used to say this thing. He said, uh, I brought you into this world, I'll take you out, and I'll make another one just as good. <laughs> right? And that's the idea of like a parent doesn't have to justify themselves to a child. And in this way, he says, I don't need to justify myself to you because of all that he had done. But then in that defense that he gives, and again, he's not backing down from who he is, but then he tempers that in the next few verses, just like we talked about last time we were together, that he talks still of his reliance on the Lord. Because he says, and we have, this, uh, we have such trust through Christ towards you. Verse 5, not that we're sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So he, he says, not that we think, or not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think as anything of being from ourselves. So all this authority that Paul just gives, look, I don't need letters, man. I don't need, I don't need that anybody, kind of, I don't need you guys to vouch for me or anything like that. I'm the authority here. But he goes, but hold on, really that authority is not even mine. That I am not sufficient and we are not sufficient uh, in and of ourselves to think of anything being from ourselves. I think this is a good reminder for him, certainly for the church here, that we don't make ourselves who we are, the Lord makes us who we are. That anything we have is from God. We, we routinely pray around here, Lord, save us from good ideas. Lord, save us from so much creativity, from, from these ploys that we might use to help you out. Because sometimes don't we feel like we have those? Lord, if you would just do it this way, you know, it'd probably be a lot better. You know, sometimes we can kind of have that trust in ourselves that somehow we have something to offer when the reality is we don't, as when it comes to the kingdom of God, we don't. Now, when it comes to different things, you know, uh, we learn that our sufficiency, some people, their sufficiency comes from their education, and that's why they're able to get the job they have, and, that's, and they have the qualifications to do certain things because of whatever, but he goes, none of that comes from ourselves. When we deal with the human soul, when we deal with spiritual things, man, our sufficiency is from the Lord. And, and, and God protect us from thinking that we have done something. 
We're very careful to, to, to always make sure that God's the one getting the credit. I love what Warren Wiersbe says about what true ministry is. If you've ever read on being a servant of God, he says ministry happens when divine resources meet human needs through loving channels to the glory of God. That our job is not, we're not manufacturers of anything, right? We don't make the goodness of God. We don't bring the blessings of God. We don't do any of that stuff. God makes it. He's the manufacturer of it. And it takes a lot of the pressure off, doesn't it? That it's not up to us to change a life and change a soul and, and make someone whatever. Or even to make ourselves whatever. It's of the Lord. And so Paul goes, man, that's sufficiency. It's not, it's not from ourselves. And he says we wouldn't even think of it as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency. What makes us sufficient? What makes us complete? What makes us able is that God has done it. And so again, after he just defends himself, he tempers that with his reliance on the Lord. And here's what God has made us. Look at this. He says, who has made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant. Now, we'll talk for a while about what that new covenant is. But, but I really like to look first at that first verb there. It says, who also made us. He did the making. He is the one who makes us sufficient. He is the one who's doing the work. And I know I've, it feels like I've probably repeated that a hundred times already. And there's a reason. Because there's always a temptation that we can make ourselves. I don't know if it's the, just the Western in us, if it's, if it's the American in us, that we have made ourselves who we've made ourselves. But the, but the issue is that God has made us to do something. But He's also, as God saves us, we know that we were once separated from God, dead in our sin, we've been made alive as we've been forgiven of our sins, adopted into God's family, not to sit and do nothing. But He's made us, He says, ministers. No, 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 not me, He'd say. That's your job. You're the minister. You're the one who does that thing. I just kind of do my... No, 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 it's a, it's a lowercase m here. A minister is just a servant. Right? Someone who, who serves. And so God, we've all been made as Christians, as we've been invited into God's family, as we've been accepted into Him, that we are now ministers of what? Of this new covenant. What does that mean? That we're servants here of the Lord in this new covenant. He says, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. What does that mean? that we are now ministers of this new covenant. Well, I would say this, just a quick through a quick read. We would see that we're called to do something within this body, aren't we? Within this family that we've been adopted into, we haven't been brought in just to sit. We come in, and we used to have a, a thing at, at our old church. It was called saved to serve. That's what we were called to do. We were called to come into the family so that we can serve then in the family. And so we've been saved to serve in this new covenant. And now he's going to get into a portion, uh, verses 7 to 11, where he compares and he contrasts the old covenant with the new covenant. Now, sometimes when we compare and contrast, we look at something like bad versus something good. That's not what this is. We're not going to at all say that the old covenant is bad. We're, we're not going to say, but we are going to say something that, that is lasting and complete that is replacing something that had an expiration date and was to a degree incomplete. Whoa, whoa, so what are you saying about the Old Testament? Is it bad? No, I didn't, no, I didn't say that. Paul in Romans chapter 7 
uh, verse 12, says that the law is holy, just, and good. We don't want to fall into this looking at the Old Testament or the law like it's something wrong or bad. I think there's a temptation and even a move within the church sometimes to go, no, no, we're just kind of New Testament, you know. Someone one time goes, you know, you're pretty Old Testament. I'm like, well, it's in the same book. (laughs) There's nothing wrong with the Old Testament, guys. There's nothing wrong with the law of God. We're going to look at something that is glorious being replaced by something more glorious. But what we need to understand is that both of these covenants came from the same source. So to say that one is bad is kind of calling into question the nature of God Himself. He doesn't create bad things. He doesn't create things that are no good. And so there is a place for the Old Testament, and we're going to take a look at it. And I do want to mention, and and again, this isn't from me. I stole this from somebody, right? Alistair Begg says this. If you're to make some notes, if you're a note taker right now, you could make two columns. And in the left column, old, and in the right column, new. That I'm kind of backwards, so old and new, right? If you're going to make those columns, maybe you could write them in your notes. But on the side of old, you would write these words, death, stone, fading, and condemnation. So right in that first column, it would under old, death, stone, fading, and condemnation. On the other side, uh, under the new, you would put uh, kind of across from each of those first words. You would put life, hearts, lasting, and righteousness. Do I need to repeat one more time? Yes. So where on the first one you'd have death, now you'd have life. From stone, you would have hearts. From fading, you would have lasting. And from condemnation, yeah, condemnation, you'd have righteousness. These are the two that we're looking at here. As we're comparing the old and the new covenant, notice though at the end of verse 6, it says, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, there have been a few misconceptions with this verse kind of throughout time that, that and, and we do a disservice, I think, to any scripture when we just pull it out of, of its context and use it for other things. But I've heard people say, you know, you know man, come on. You need to be in the Spirit because the letter kills, man, but the Spirit brings life. And again, it says it right here, but, but what he's talking about is in the context of an old covenant and a new covenant. Because some people have, have since then taken the Bible and treated this like this was the letter. But that, that being filled with the Spirit and the experience you might have as, as being in the Spirit. And go, man, no, no, you don't need to pay so much attention to the Bible. But we have these experience, you know, you, you know the Spirit, that's where the life is. Mm, I don't think that's it. Because at no time would the Holy Spirit ever do anything that's contrary to the Word of God. Right? And we'll talk at the very end how the Lord is the Spirit. And so as, as the Holy Spirit being just as much a part of the Godhead, right? He's just as much God as the Son and as the Father. He would not do anything that contradicts His own Word. 
And so some people go, well, well, you know, sometimes there's like, maybe, maybe it's like the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. No, when he says the letter and the spirit, he's talking of two things. The letter being the old covenant and the spirit being the new covenant. How do we know that? Because he says what, what each one does. The letter kills. The spirit brings life. So if the letter kills, well, we know, and he's going to talk about what the ministry of the old covenant was. And that's where we have in our, in our little note-taking, the, the death and the life. Because we know of the Old Testament and, and of the law itself, and we're going to get into a little bit of Moses here, but those two tablets that had the law of God written on them, those ten commandments. Now again, they were holy and they were just and they were good at doing what they were supposed to do. But what did they do? Did they give you any power to live a Spirit-filled life? No. They just exposed our sin, right? They showed us what kind of sinners we were. Later, if you read all the way through the book of Deuteronomy, you'll see that there's 613 laws, actually, right? That's what the religious leaders were able to bring that to, that all the times that God says, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this, they, they, took, all ten, they took those 10 plus all the other things God had said, right? About how, you know, if, uh, if an ox falls in a ditch and you don't get it out, then, then, you know, that's sin. Okay, well, that's one of the 613, you know? I mean, every little thing, they took it, and, but you know what it does? The law, when used correctly, shows us that we are sinners. And we're sinners not in need of getting better. In need of complete forgiveness. We don't just need a good teacher to help make us better people. We don't just need a physician to make us healthier people. We need to come from death to life. Right? The gospel doesn't make bad men good doesn't even make good men better. It makes dead men come to life. That is the gospel. That is the new covenant. Now, we'll talk a little bit more of that in a second, but let's read verses 7 to 11. No, oh, also notice, we're going to see this word glory or glorious quite a few times. In the whole book of 2 Corinthians, this word glory shows up 19 times, 14 of them in today's text. So we're talking about glory, right? We're talking about something glorious. If it's repeated that, well, what is glory? Glory is a difficult thing to uh, define. So some words, and especially as we see God through Scripture, when we see the word glory, it's the expression of His power and His honor. It has to do with magnificence, splendor, and fame. And so he says in verse 7, if the ministry of death written and engraved on stones, was glorious. So that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away. How will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. For if what was passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. Do you see that comparing and contrasting? Uh, he does make a quick note of Moses. And so what I do want to understand, and, and we, for the sake of time, can't turn there right now, but if you would uh, at least mark in your Bibles Exodus chapter 34. Now, we know in Exodus, 
when the law is given. If you remember this story, the children of Israel are in bondage. They're, they're set free and they go out into the wilderness. They come to the base of Mount Sinai and God descends in a cloud on top of Mount Sinai. There's fire on the mountain, there's loud noise on the mountain, there's lightning and there's thunder and there's just all this stuff happening and God speaks to His people there in the wilderness and He speaks to them the Ten Commandments. At that point, the people go, we don't want to do this anymore. We don't want to hear the voice of God. This is really scary for us. So Moses, why don't you be the go-between between us and God? We don't want to talk to God. God can talk to you and then you talk to us. So Moses goes up on the mountain. You remember he spends 40 days up there. God gives him two tablets that are written with these 10 laws. In the process of that time, being up on the mountain, the people go, what happened to Moses? Where's he at? And so Aaron, like a good assistant, says, guys, let's just wait and let it play out for a little bit. Yeah, right. <laughs> Aaron goes, well, give me all your gold. <laughs> And he takes the gold and he throws it in the fire, melts it down, fashions a golden calf. And he sets it up for everybody. He goes, hey, this is our God. This is what got us out of Egypt. And the people go, works for us. And so they start partying, right? And they're having a pretty gnarly party. Like a little too much, right? A lot too much, right? We don't need to get into the particulars. You can read it for yourself. But it says that the people rose up to eat and drink and, they, and, they, and to play. Bad stuff going on here, okay? And so as Moses and Joshua are coming back down the mountain, Joshua goes... Moses, is that the sound of war in the camp? And Moses goes, nope, that's the sound of partying. That's bad news. And he comes down and he sees the people doing what they're doing and Moses gets so frustrated, he throws down the tablets, breaks them that God had just given him. He ends up grinding the, the calf into powder, throwing it in the water, making the people drink it. You know, he's so frustrated and he, and he goes before the Lord and he intercedes on their behalf. He's like, God, is there any way you can forgive them? Like, like you just spoke to them less than, you know, just, just like 40 days ago, and they've already drifted. God invites Moses to come back up the mountain. And, and, and we see that when Moses comes back with two new tablets, he didn't realize it, but his face was shining. Do you guys remember this part of the story? That his face was shining. It kind of weirded the people out. I find it a little interesting that it was after all that crazy stuff had happened. Because the first time he didn't, come, he didn't come down shining, but the second time he did. Sometimes there's a new intimacy that happens with the Lord, right, after big failure, right? And as he goes back up that second time and comes down a second time, this time his face is glowing. And so the people being weirded out by it, Moses covers his, his face with, with a veil, and, and it says that when he would be amongst the people, he'd keep, he'd keep the veil on. But then when he would go in and have fellowship with the Lord there in the tent they had set up, he would be able to lift that veil. He had that freedom to take off the veil and just be with the Lord. That's what Paul's referencing as he starts talking about this. When he says in verse 7, uh, uh, if the ministry of death. Now again, why is it a ministry of death? Let's talk quickly about the law. The law... And Paul says it in Romans. There's nothing bad about it. It's good. It's just. It's holy. But the law can only expose sin. It can only show us our need for a Savior. The law gives us no power to overcome sin. 
It just shows us that we are sinners. Again, we have to get this, guys, because sometimes there's this temptation, and there was for a good period of time, uh, you know, back especially the church was getting started, that people felt like they had to live the law, they had to live the law. Now, again, it's the aim, right? It's the aim to live right with the Lord. That's when God says, this is what I approve, this is what I don't approve of. It's good, it's holy, but there's no power in it. Now, when we, though, are accepted into God's family, what comes with that is the Holy Spirit coming and living inside of us. And then do you remember in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where he says that you will receive what? Power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Right? That, that, that you'll be able then to be my witnesses. You'll be able to live a godly life. You'll be able to live pleasing to God. Now, does that mean we never sin anymore? Oh, of course we know. But doesn't he give us power to say no to sin? I mean, as we're filled with the Spirit, as we're walking in God, not that we could ever be perfect, but, but all of a sudden there starts being more victory in our life than defeat. There's things that on our best days, years ago, we couldn't say no to. Sometimes we didn't even want to say no to. And now we have the power to say no to. Not because we're special, not because we're sufficient of ourselves. Why? Because of the Lord, that He's given us power by His Holy Spirit. And so he said, if the ministry of death that was written and engraved on stones was glorious, because indeed it was glorious. He says, though, he says, if that was glorious so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance. And then he says real quickly, which glory, by the way, was passing away. That's something we're not told in Exodus (laughs) when Moses wrote what he wrote about this situation. He was like, oh, yeah, I just covered my face, you know. Paul gives us more insight. He goes, well, it was because it was fading. He didn't want him to see it fading. That's what it was. Because day by day, his face was getting shades lower and lower, right? Instead of being so bright, it was darkening every day. He says, but that was glorious. Then in verse 8, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? Again, we're not comparing and contrasting something good and bad. We're comparing something that was built for a certain time, but really, indeed, it was temporary until Jesus would come. Just like a carton of milk has an expiration date on it, it's only good up to a certain time, then something new needs to come in its place. And that's what we see with Jesus. If you guys remember, because if you'll read all the way through Leviticus and then Numbers and then Deuteronomy, the system that was set up there with Moses was there was a morning and an evening sacrifice just to be covering the people's sin. There was also one family, the family of Levi, that was dedicated to serving the Lord. From that family Levi, one family, Aaron's family, was tasked with what? With the priesthood. And these would be the representatives between God and people, and then they would have a high priest within there. And it was him only one day a year, the Day of Atonement, not without blood for himself, right, for his own sin, realizing that even as a priest, as God's representative, he was still a sinner. He would have to deal with his own sin and then, with blood, go into the most holy place and deal with the sin of the people for the year. And it was a day that the people would afflict themselves. And and they would go, man, and, and, and on that day, you know, they would cover again the sins for the year. Just one day a year. One guy. One place. And he says, and that was glorious. But the new covenant is more glorious. Why? 
He says, like Moses had to hide his face, he said, if the ministry, verse 9, of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds more in glory. Just like we see in our notes, right? There's condemnation on one side, there's righteousness on the other side. What is that righteousness? It's an imputed righteousness. It's a righteousness that's given to us. How? Through Jesus. Just like we talked about all the sacrifice all these innocent animals through all the years just so that we can cover the sin of the people. Pastor Gary and I were talking about this right before I came in, so I'm going to steal what he said. This is what makes the ministry of Jesus so much more glorious, that He came and fulfilled the law of God. That at no point did He break any of those Ten Commandments or that those commandments, as you keep, you know, adding them all up all the way through Deuteronomy, come out to 613 commandments. Not one of them did He break. He lived a perfect life, not just a good life, not a pretty good life, but as God Himself in the flesh lived a life that was pleasing to the Father so that when He would offer Himself on the cross, His sacrifice meant something. You know, there's some good people in this room, right? There's some good people here in this room. And and if you can try to die for someone else, we would be able to go, even though you're good... (laughs) You're not quite good enough because you're a sinner like the rest of us. And you don't have enough. But God, only He has what it takes to satisfy His own wrath and His own judgment, doesn't He? And so He has this law that He establishes. Well, He sends His Son to live that law and in every way fulfills that law. Right? Jesus, I didn't come to destroy the law. I came to fulfill it. So he fulfills the law so that his his substitutionary death would work. So we can look at Jesus and he's the one who's paid for everything. So now, and do you remember what happened? He yelled some words from the cross when he died. And then something happened. He yells these words, it is finished. It's a banking term meaning paid in full. That the debt that we owe, that we could not pay, was paid by Him. Even though He didn't owe it, He was able to pay it. And He paid that debt in full. And then what happened in the temple? You remember? There's a little curtain in there that separated the holy place from the most holy place where the, ta- where the, where the Ark of the Covenant was, the mercy seat. I find it interesting that inside that Ark, That little box, small little thing, right? Not too big. Do you remember what was in there? The tablets of stone. The Ten Commandments. The law of God is in there. And what's covering that? It's called the mercy seat. There's the two cherubim on top of it. And and it's so funny because this, this mercy seat, another translation for that word can be propitiation which is what? It's, it's the payment that can satisfy. That's propitiation. And so God, His presence dwelling between the cherubim, this is all a picture of heaven, looking down onto the law, it's separated by that mercy seat. And what are we told? What did God say? I'll meet you at the mercy seat. Right? Jesus is that for us. And so when, when this happens, and then, and then that holy of holies, it's separated, that curtain, that, that, that curtain between that only one man one time a year can go between is torn, not from bottom to top like we tore it. Torn from top to bottom, God tore it open. 
saying, come on in and have fellowship. It's not just one man one time a year. Come on in because I've paid what needs to be paid. That's a glorious new covenant, isn't it? Isn't that good that we now have this boldness that we can go in? And he says, for, for verse 10, for even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels it. For if what was passing away was glorious, what remains is that much more glorious. And so verses uh, 12 through 13, we talk about the boldness we have now. He says, therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. Unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel would not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. It's kind of uh, odd to see that. It's not a dig, but it almost sounds like it, right, as Paul writes. He goes, so we have this great boldness of speech unlike Moses. (laughs) Unlike Moses, who had to put a veil over his face. Guys, we have this boldness. Don't you love that in Hebrews? When he says that we have boldness to come in and to fellowship with God. We don't have to be afraid. We we don't have to send a proxy to go and do business with God. We can walk in. That Jesus has given us access to the Father. And that's really crazy for me to think because I look at this room, just like I said, there's some good people in here. There's also some knuckleheads in here. Right? There is. And I'll tell you, man, we were, we were praying this. We pray before uh, church starts, the ushers kind of get together. We, we set things up around 7 in the morning. And, and so about 7.45, we have a little, everyone's always invited. You want to come pray with us at 7.45 in the morning. We're always there. But we're sitting around kind of looking in the room going like, man, look who's here. <laughs> and I won't tell you who they are, but most of them you can see them, they wear a certain color shirt, um, that we're just kind of going, can you believe we get access to talk to God? If there was a mayor of feeling, most of us wouldn't have access. You know? Certainly, if we want to talk to people in authority, we get put on a list, don't we? You want to go talk to a council person or you want to talk to an assemblyman or you want to talk to a governor, if you want to talk to the president, if you want to talk to one of the, you know, some type of world leader, if you want to talk to a CEO of a company, what do they say? Call the secretary and make an appointment, right? To talk to someone like the God of the universe, it used to be, it's like, hey, high priest, can you put in a good word while you're in there? As you go in one time a year, And now we have boldness to walk into the holiest of all because of what Jesus has done for us. We have access to the Father. That in one moment we can be talking to a friend, in the next moment we can be in the throne room of God talking to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. What a privilege. What a privilege we have as God's people to have that boldness. And he says, unlike unlike Moses who had to put a veil over his face, Now, again, we see that the reason he was doing that is because it was getting less and less shiny every day. It was dimming by the day. Now, here with this whole chapter almost being like a parenthetical thought, he's going to go just a little further and and kind of one more little parenthesis here and, and talk about the veil. He says, but their minds 
were blinded. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. Verse 15, even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is then taken away. Now, instead of just talking about him hiding the glory, he's talking about this veil as it keeps a distance between people and God. He's saying that they don't really see. You know, sometimes when we, and and maybe because we've been walking with the Lord as long as we have, we're like, everyone should see this. Everyone should believe this. Everyone should know this. We look at our Jewish brothers and sisters and we go, how do you not see it? Just read Isaiah 53, man. You read that. There's no way you wouldn't believe in Jesus. But what's the deal? For some reason, there's a veil covering their heart. This is a good reminder to me that in any type of evangelism, in any type of trying to tell people about God, how central it must be that we pray and ask God to do the work. Because earlier we just talked about, not that we're sufficient of ourselves to think is anything of being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from the Lord, isn't it? So people, have this veil covered. And Paul would understand this better than anybody, right? Wasn't he blind for a few short days? Right? Wasn't he blind to spiritual things, so zealous for God Almighty that he wanted to kill Christians? Because he had this veil covering. But then when, when, when it's lifted, right, when we see that he, he kind of comes to his senses once the Lord touches him and he's, he's healed from his blindness, now he sees clearly the veil's been taken away. And that was the case for many of us, wasn't it? Weren't there people who talked to you about Jesus way before you, you were ready to surrender your life to Him? And you're like, that is nonsense. You're crazy. And then one day, the veil's lifted in Jesus, and you go, oh. Why did I see that all along? Because it's a work of God, that's why. And so that's why it's so important, guys, that we pray. Again, as persuasive as you are, as persuasive as I could be with people, my arguments, my, you know, speaking is not going to change a life. It's the Lord who does that. It's, it's Christ that lifts the veil. And so we pray. And I think David Guzik said this. He said, if we had to choose between the two in evangelism, whether to talk to people about God or talk to God about people, we should choose that second one. Now, thankfully, we don't have to choose between the two. We can still do both, but it's so important that we pray that God go before us, God do the work, and God be lifting the veil so that when those words come, they can be received. And so he finishes off now here. He says, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Now, this is another one of those verses that has at times throughout the church Uh, kind of been lifted from its context and used to say maybe things it's not intended to say. That uh, I've heard people say, oh, I could do this. I could do whatever I want because where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. And and it's like, I and and we have to temper this all with Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 and verse 13 when he talks about how we can't use our liberty as a license for sin. Because there can be times like, I'm free. I'm free to do this thing. I'm free to 
enjoy this thing or that thing because, because you know, the Lord is the Spirit. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. That's not exactly what he's saying. Uh, whether it's something, or, or others have kind of taken this in this real experiential uh, uh, kind of experience with the Holy Spirit to, to maybe do, and I, I, I'm trying to be real delicate here, but, but to do, I mean, even at times, some outlandish things. That's like, oh no, I'm just so full of the Spirit, I just do these things that are maybe a little silly. Um, the same Spirit who is filling us is the same spirit that was filling Paul when he wrote that everything in the church needs to be done how? Decently and in order. The, the Holy Spirit will never contradict what he says in his word. And, and, and I know we've said that already, so, but I think it bears saying again when it comes to this verse. The context of this verse, he's talking about a boldness that we have to enter in and have fellowship with God. He's talking about a shame that there was in, in veiling our faces, right? Or that Moses was veiling his face with. He says where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Guys, we have this freedom to fellowship with God. We have this freedom to go in and be with. And so he says, so we all with unveiled face, uh, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. See, he's not talking about, he's not talking about like running through the halls filled with the Spirit and then, and then comes right back into talking what he's talking about. The verse goes with the rest of the verses. They, they all belong here with, this, with each other. And so he says, so where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. There's this liberty we have to be with the Lord. And we are like with unveiled face, right? Just like Moses when he was able to take the veil off, fellowship with God, be there right with him. And he says, but even that, it was a ministry of condemnation. So his, his, his face was dimming each day. For us, gang, we get to be with the Lord at any moment, whenever we want. We can fellowship with God. If anything, our faces should be what? Getting brighter and brighter. We're beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. And, we're, and he says, and we're being transformed into the same image from the glory of the Lord just, by, by, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. That we who have been made righteous now, right? There's a glory there and it's more too. Again, he's, we're not just taking our flaws and kind of making them a little better. Like we're not, again, we're not bad people becoming good or good people becoming better. We're dead people who have come to life. And through that, we are drawing closer and closer to the Lord from glory to glory. Not from, not from junk and trash into something decent. No, because of what Jesus has given us, He's imputed His righteousness upon us. And now we're righteous before the Father because of what's been given to us by Jesus. And how the Lord looks at us through the lens of His Son and this imputed righteousness, the Bible says, that He's imputed that to us. He's given it to us. Not that we're perfect. Obviously, we're not perfect. But we've been forgiven because that's what the old covenant couldn't do. It couldn't make us right before God. And so the new covenant, established by Jesus, right, solidified by Him, we have fellowship with God. How amazing is that? Lord, we thank you so much for who you are. And we thank you for all you've done. We thank you for forgiving us of our sins, Lord. And, and Lord, in a room this size, who knows, maybe there's somebody here today, maybe a couple who don't know you personally. They've never known you in a personal way. Lord, they've never had their sins forgiven. We would pray for them this morning that today would be the day that they choose to follow you. Lord, we pray that maybe you would have lifted that veil. 
that these words would have fallen on a good heart today. If that's anybody here today, maybe you're just with our heads bowed, eyes closed, you've never had Jesus forgive you of your sins. If you'd like to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I'd just like you to slip your hand in the air. I'd like to pray for you. If that's anybody at all. Right on. Lord, we thank you that we're family here today, that we can all rejoice together in the finished work of Jesus on the cross that would forgive us, invite us into, into, into your family, and Lord, allow us to have continued fellowship with you. We thank you for these words, Lord, that were, that were written, that we might study them. Lord, would we take full advantage of all that you've allowed us to, to have, all that you've allowed us to be, Lord, forgive us for not taking you up uh, on that offer more often to come in and have fellowship with you. Lord, just continue to lead us and guide us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.